0: I'm Zibby Owens, and you're listening to Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Today's episode has been sponsored by Serial Box. Serial Box delivers addictive book content in short listen or read installments, designed to fit into today's fast-paced mobile lifestyle. Switch between listening and reading with a single click, picking up right where you left off. Learn more at serialbox.com. S-E-R-I-A-L-B-O-X.com. I'm excited to be interviewing Carolyn Mernick today. Carolyn is the author of The Hot One, a memoir of friendship, sex, and murder. An editor of New York Magazine, she has contributed to several anthologies and delivered a TEDx talk called How Crime Shows Undermine Your Empathy. She currently lives in Brooklyn, New York. So welcome, Carolyn, to Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Thanks so much for coming. Thank you for having me. So nice to meet you in person. So your book was so good, as I was just telling you. I, like, gobbled it down on an airplane and couldn't wait to talk to you about it. I'm so sorry for your loss. Your book was about—well, why don't you tell listeners a little bit about what the book was about, and then I can
1: go from there. Um, My book is called The Hot One, and— it's the story of my search for answers around my childhood best friend's murder. And she was killed in L.A. in 2001 when she was 22 and I was 21. And, you know, the story and what happened to her really haunted me throughout my 20s. And then in 2008, I learned that there was a man arrested who was was connected to her murder as well as three other victims, and he was going to be put to trial in L.A. And so that began my reporting process, and I decided I wanted to write a book that chronicled the unfolding court case for her alleged killer, but also really got at the power of childhood friendships and how this relationship had really made such an impact on me. She was my first best friend when we were seven, eight, nine years old in New Jersey. I'm so sorry.
0: I'm sorry about your loss. Thank you. And I was actually—I just—I interviewed another author. We were talking about how sometimes when you lose touch with someone who then passes away, it's like mm-hmm. almost harder, right? Because you—you think, do I have a right to be this upset? Almost, right? Yeah. If we not, if we've drifted
1: apart. But yeah, you—I mean, yeah. you never know how, what kind of loss, or who, or when loss is going to sort of trigger something in you, and. What I started noticing when I would talk about Ashley throughout my 20s, I realized that lots of other women resonated with the story of this sort of friend who got away, someone who you had so much in common with in childhood and then maybe started to take different paths, which is what happened with Ashley and I in sort of the high school years. And I think I describe our relationship as like our bond was... Cemented during a sort of innocent, playful girlhood time. And then as girls start to make different decisions around things like drugs and sex and have different life experiences, that can kind of feel really complicated for, you know, you as a young person because you're looking to your friends for to show you how to be in the world and kind of figure out your own identity in reference to them. So when someone starts making different decisions, it can... It can feel like a referendum on your own choices. And so that was a little bit what happened with Ashley and me in our high school years. And as I write about in the book, we had kind of one last, I didn't know it would be the last, but one sort of last weekend, which turned out to be a kind of a reckoning experience when we were about 20. And I learned that, you know, her life in L.A. was so much different than what mine was as a student in New York. And I was intimidated by her and confused and I wondered if our relationship would have a, f- have a future, and then a year later, she was found dead. So crazy that story. Yeah, I like how you contrasted how your relationship
0: started with sort of how it ended, mm-hmm. um, how you had your, the two of you so close, like taking pictures of yourselves, mm-hmm. like kind of being faux so flirty at such a yeah. young age, and you know, at your parents like kind of getting upset at the pictures, mm-hmm. you know, and then to have her actually become sort of more in that sort of sexualized way. Yeah. I feel like I had a friend at one point, like we broke the rules in this one way. And for me, it was like, that's as far as I was going to go with breaking the rules. And mm-hmm. that was just the beginning for her. Yeah, And so then like our yeah. adults, as adults, we completely drifted mm-hmm. and she actually ended up passing away as well. So oh, I felt like I'm I related sorry. to you yeah. a lot in your book because it yeah. was like what used to bring you so close together. right? And then all of a yeah. sudden you're...
1: I think everyone has a friendship like that. It doesn't mean that that person died, but that somehow there was a Parting of, you know, closeness, and that you still end up thinking about that person throughout life, and maybe sometimes are subconsciously comparing yourself to that person. And yeah,
0: yeah. So, how did you go from this whole experience happening to you to making this into a book Mm -hmm. and a really great gripping book at that? How did I know you work at New York Magazine and you have a lot of you know magazine writing background? But what did you do with this story? How did you turn it into a into a great memoir? Well, thank you.
1: But, you know, so, so the, the story had a, you know, it had a very organic evolution over many, many years. I mean, I also want to point out, it's been almost 20 years since she died. And I worked on the book for, I think, close to nine years. You know, the paperback just came out last year, and I had a new afterword in that, and— I don't want to give too much away, but the sort of unfolding court case is still going on. And so it's going to be in the news again, and I'm doing more writing about it. But just linearly, when she died in 2001, as I write about, I just had so many questions that I didn't know how to find answers to. And, you know, I had preconceived ideas about what might have happened to her considering the last time I saw her, I learned that she was working in the sex industry and doing drugs and dating older guys and actors who were flying her all over the world to visit them on set. And she just seemed to have such a glamorous, fast-paced, very LA lifestyle that I didn't relate to and intimidated me. And I I had all these ideas around like who who could have done it and how do I find out more? And unfortunately, um there was very little information available to me. We had I learned about it in our town newspaper in New Jersey, though because though her family had already moved away to California during high school. So the kind of flow of information and answers to the questions that anyone would have kind of weren't around and I just sat for years around my feelings about that last weekend and how confusing it had been, and I kind of go into more detail about either conversations we did or didn't have that weekend, what happened between us with you know, going out in New York nightlife and guys and how I was comparing myself to her and maybe vice versa. I just knew that there was a lot of emotional, I felt like a lot of emotional truth to be mined with writing about what that weekend meant. And And then, like I said, as I started talking about it with other women, people were telling me their own stories about that they had an Ashley in their life, too, and what happened to her. And so I knew that there was something universal there, but I'm not an investigative journalist, and I, you know, I did sort of entertainment journalism throughout my 20s and worked at different magazines, but I'd never taken on something this kind of complex and hard-hitting and detailed. But, you know, then I started New York Magazine in 2008, and— that also turned out to be you know, this uh, another year of like media falling apart. Everyone I knew was getting laid off. Magazines were closing. It was announced that there was going to be layoffs at New York Magazine. <laughs> I started freaking out and thinking <laughs> about what could be a different path for me. Maybe now is the time to really take on this book. And also, I have to kind of credit New York Magazine in a subtle way, because just sort of being among these really brilliant journalists, I felt like maybe— you know, maybe I can pick something up from them and I could be a person to tell the story. So I started having little conversations with people around the magazine who had written books and asked for what they thought of the story or asked like, Would they refer me to their agent or would they look at this query letter that I had written? And so baby steps from there. And then I learned that there had been this arrest in L.A. and that there was going to be a real criminal trial. And so obviously it was like, okay, this is the moment to do this, whether I'm ready or not. And so then I just started the process of sending out queries, finding an agent, starting to go on some reporting trips to L.A. And then very slowly, about a year later, I sold the book on proposal. And then, you know, the the sticking point was what I had pitched was that. I'm going to be following this trial, which is going to be happening soon because the guy was arrested in 2008. There was a preliminary hearing in 2010. But, spoiler alert, the trial still hasn't happened in, you know, and we're in the year 2019. So, you know, many years into my writing process, I had to figure out a new way to shape the narrative because I realized I wasn't going to be able to wait for the trial because no one knew when it would be.
0: I can't believe how long it takes to get somebody on trial. When they have all this information and there's so much, I mean— all the stuff you documented from the preliminary hearing and right. everything that you
1: went and recorded, it's... It's very unusual what's happening to in this particular case. And I think, you know, from my understanding, it has to do with, you know, so many moving parts have to line up to be able to put someone on trial for multiple victims who... And then one of them is in another state, and so there could even be another trial in Illinois after this. But, you know, what's happened year after year is... You know, a prosecutor can be working on it for many years and then they have to take a leave and then a new prosecutor comes on who's given a year or more to kind of get up to speed and then a defense attorney leaves because this defendant is allowed to keep having as many court-appointed defense attorneys as he wants. And so just year after year, these sort of like personnel changes on different sides have pushed things back, judges leave, then there's like things as ridiculous as like the courtroom that you think it's going to be in suddenly is booked for months and then i don't know somehow this can add up to like 10 years of delays oh my gosh. yeah and it's so great in the
0: book you sort of paint yourself as this like self-effacing court Mm-hmm. Reporter, like you like you make it so that it seems like you don't know what you're doing at all And you're like talking to the actual reporters yeah. next to you
1: Right, I mean, that is definitely how I felt And, you know, I write about this in the book As scene, my first or second time showing up to watch one of these hearings for the defendant There were other media who were covering the case And this has gotten some media attention Because it's a, you know, L.A. serial killer And all the victims are white women Which, as we know, kind of gets more media interest. But the other point is that on the night of Ashley's murder, she was supposed to be going on a date with Ashton Kutcher. And he was 24 or 25 at the time. This was kind of before before he really took off. But then when he did become more famous, this story came up again. And this case has been reported all these different ways as like Ashton Kutcher's tragedy and like, will he testify? I mean, I think he will be testifying and that's going to be a whole circus. And are you annoyed that the
0: media has made this into his story when it's so much about your friend and her story and what happened and his part was so tiny?
1: Yeah, I mean, uh, of course. And I think one of the things I, I wanted to explore in the book is that there are different ways to, to tell crime stories that aren't focused on the man. But Um, most of the time that is what we're getting. And, you know, the narrative is based around the male killer, or in this case, it's this male actor and what happened to him. Or sometimes it's, you know, you see stories like, the, what was that one on HBO with John Turturo Almost any prestige crime drama, it's like the detectives and the lawyers are the through line that we're getting instead of the female victims. And so, I mean, the Ashton Kutcher fiasco is just another version of how the story of women's deaths can, you know, gets pivoted to be about men. And you wrote a great article in The Cut
0: about that very recently, Mm -hmm. which was really great. I mean, you had such a strong opinion about how the crime shows, you know, are only about the criminals, and yeah. it's really like sensationalizing them. It's sort of mm-hmm. like what we say at the dinner table: like you can't give attention to the one who's like you should give more attention to the kid who's been hurt than the one who does it, or else they like right. they like thrive off that attention. Yeah. And I like how you even you ended that article about bakers who are making cakes that are bad for you. At least they know, yeah. And that's sort of like what they're doing now. I'm probably mangling yeah. this. No, Maybe no, no. you could
1: say it better, but um. yeah, I mean there there's. I feel like, you know, we're always having a new moment of prestige crime TV. It seems like these podcasts and these shows and books are being released every week now. And, you know, this month it's all about Ted Bundy because we have the Ted Bundy tapes documentary on Netflix, as well as this Zac Efron dramatization of Ted Bundy. And so all this attention around, like, let's eat this up with kind of elevating and glamorizing these men. But... I know that there is a different way to tell these stories that is still powerful. Like, I I know that we are sucked in by crime for all different complicated reasons, but I do think, and this is what I tried to do with my book, I think that there's a way to get at these feelings that we're having and the drive we have to consume these stories, but make it more sensitive to the victims, like, and shift the attention around what happened to either the victims and the family stories, or the media, and just a w- I know that there's a way to kind of tell the story that drives home the emotion of loss more than elevating these male killers over and over again, and just being like, "Ah, wow, the criminal mastermind this guy was." I need to know more about him. I think it's just the fascination with something so different
0: and so sick. Yeah. Right. It's like, how can that happen? It's like, why we're attracted to car wrecks and all of that, isn't it? It's like a little bit like. Watching a disaster unfold.
1: hmm Yeah, I mean, I think the car wreck analogy is, is a good one. But, you know, as I said in this piece I wrote for The Cut today, I actually have, you know, studied this serial killer for over 10 years now, I've seen him in person, had interactions with people he knew. And I recognize being drawn to him as holding answers, but I know that he doesn't now after years. And there's so much more interesting, more meaningful stuff to explore about this case and any crime story than just let's get inside this killer's head. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I just think it's missing the point. And it's it's a real missed opportunity around how we could convey the true sort of trauma and tragedy of loss. You also,
0: not to change the subject, but you do a lot about the male gaze in this Mm -hmm. book. Took me back to like art history class and all of that. But Ashley, you refer to her striking looks and her sort of self-possession and how attractive she was many times. You wrote, it was as if Ashley had taken that essential truth I woke up to at 10 that the male gaze was a given and stared squarely, defiantly right back at it while I was still attempting to avoid eye contact for as long as possible. And then later in the book you say, in the years since my feelings had shifted, the male gaze felt like power only up to a point. It could just as easily be disempowering. So how do you feel about that now? Tell me Tell me more yeah. about that whole thing.
1: Yeah, it, those are some complicated ideas. I think, you know, the first part, looking at Ashley as a 19, 20, 21-year-old, she had great sexual confidence and magnetism. I mean, the title of the book is The Hot One, and I use that to mean a, f- a few different things, but also just that that's who she was. And especially, it's also supposed to connote the way that Girls and women, you know, it always seems like they have to be held up in competition to each other or reference to each other. If you have two girls together, one's the hot one and one's the not hot one or the smart one or the, you know, the sporty one, there's always, there can only be one. And so somewhere along the line, I think that became Ashley. And I sort of want to explore the idea of how and when for girls those identities start to take hold and then how they affect your sense of self and also how you operate within the world. And... You know, I was not sophisticated enough at age twenty to be able to have these conversations with her. And it was only much later that I started to understand what that might might have felt like and look like. You know, as I grew up, perhaps I might have felt, you know, I maybe I wasn't an active dater. I was kind of a maybe more of a typical college student which just starting to have my first few relationships and things not working out, et cetera. But then after years of dating, probably, I felt like maybe by by maybe my early thirties, when I was finishing up this book, having much more experience with men, I sort of had had a taste of an understanding of, you know, what sexual power can look and feel like. In some ways, that's when I felt like I was understanding what it was when I was in my thirties. But she maybe understood it much younger, and it's a burden, and it and it can be a dangerous thing in a way, and it doesn't necessarily mean that. You are fulfilled just because you recognize that guys are going to be attracted to you and want to sleep with you immediately. You know Do you feel that having a
0: friend like Ashley, do you feel like that's something that you carry with you, like you in in comparison to someone else, like even when that other person goes away, do you feel like you carry sort of the insecurity that the contrast? Do you know what I'm trying mm-hmm. to say here? Yeah. Like, does that linger or well, or then do you get another friend? Does your next right. friend come around? And now in that friendship, you're like the super smart one or right. you're like amazing or you have these great eyes or whatever and then you
1: yeah, I move mean, move that, on? That's something that I also write about in the book, that these labels are so arbitrary. You have mm-hmm. two girls together and one's the hot one in that group. And then later on in life, you could be the hot one in someone else's group. And so I guess now... You know, with the the hindsight of many, many years, Mm -hmm. I I recognize kind of how to pay attention to those things a little better. And when you're a woman recognizing what might be triggering to you about different dynamics that are going on, these are clearly things I didn't know how to put my finger on when I was 20 and last seeing Ashley. I just knew that being around her made me feel bad about myself. And do you think it is something—is it too,
0: like, an advanced thought, or do you think that we could try to teach—like, I have two Mm daughters— Is there, do you
1: think that it's something you can say? Like, you might feel terrible in this
0: group, but wait till you get to your next school. Right. It's
1: very complicated. I have a daughter now too. And I think about how to express these ideas. I mean, I really have no idea. I just hope that what I would like to share more with my daughter, I think, which wasn't, which I didn't quite have these conversations with my mom about is just that, I don't know, these are real complicated issues. And, you know, we tell girls you can be anything you want, but yet, but there's always a but to that. And I don't think that my mom ever really clearly explained the but of, you know, telling girls they can be anything. And these other forces that are going to, you know, be at play. And that's kind of what I, those are some of the ideas that I was playing with in the prologue of my book, which was, Ashley and I, as kids, used to take all these pictures of each other all the time. We had these cheap cameras, and my parents would develop the film every week. And one night, we decided to pretend to be Playboy models. And we had pictures of each other as, you know, topless and swinging on bars. And it was very, it was proto-erotic. You know, it was like we were nine years old, and there wasn't exactly sexual energy. It was just sort of exploration. We didn't know what was happening. It was girlhood. However... Two weeks later, when my parents brought the photos back to me, they hadn't looked at them, but they had been told by the photo delivery person, we don't develop smut. And suddenly my parents were like, "What are what's on this film? We are ashamed, et cetera. What's happening? And that right there tells you that, you know, a girl can go through it. Girls are going throughout life kind of having their own experiences and playing. But other people can apply meaning to what you are and what you're doing that will some that will get in the way of, you know, what where you're trying to go. I'm saying this in a very abstract no, way, I get but it, I think I get you it. get it. And yeah. so that was kind of the beginning of my understanding of oh, there's there's a lot more at play here to being a girl. You can't just you can dress however you want, however, judgments that people are going to make at you or how you might be perceived or et cetera, you can't control and you will have to live with in all different ways, you know, and that's
0: unfortunate. So are you planning on going to the whole trial? Like, are you going to go out? Where
1: is it going to be in LA? Yeah, it's in LA. And it's, you know, as of very recently, there was a hearing just two days ago where they have set a date to begin March 18th, which is really amazing. But also feels like, well, we'll see. We'll see if it really gets started. I won't believe that this is going to start until it's, I'm sitting in the seat. So I do hope to be able to go to at least some of it. It's going to be a real emotionally intense thing to do. It's also going to be really long. I don't There's no way I can cover the entire thing. It could be, you know, over three, three, four months. But hope to get out there for some of it. Hopefully do some more writing about it. And like the part two, book part two? Something like that. I don't, yeah. (laughs) I'm not sure. Do you have any other books that
0: you're itching to write at this point? Or do you feel like that just was exactly what you needed to get out?
1: I don't know. I mean, I am certainly not a fast writer. I've worked on this, I worked on this project for almost 10 years. So it's, I'm sort of like, well, you know, if a book is going to take me 10 to 20 years a piece, you know, who knows? Obviously I have to, if I'm going to keep doing this, I've got to, contract that process a little bit more. So we'll see. At the moment, I feel like there's still a little bit more to see through with this story. Yeah. And I'm kind of only just coming up for air around, you know, the whole long process of writing the book in isolation and then letting it out and seeing the feedback and what comes back to you and, you know, how your perspectives continue to evolve after the book is out in the world. Have you had any,
0: did you have any surprising reactions to it once it came out? You know, all sorts of things. I had
1: people contacting me saying, you know, certainly people saying I had a friend like this and this is helping me remember or honor my friend. Other people who have had stories of loss or, you know, were relatives of, victim of a crime that maybe wouldn't have very much in common with what happened to Ashley have reached out and said— This book has really given me some new ways to think about this grief right now, and that's been very meaningful. I've also heard from other people who knew Ashley who I didn't know during the time of my reporting, friends of hers from California or a summer program. I recently heard from someone who grew up with the alleged killer. So, you know, you never know who's going to find these things and how it will click with them. Do you feel it gave you some sort of personal closure to have done it? Well, you know, as I write about in the book, I'm I'm still of mixed mixed uh, mind about what closure is. I don't think that, I don't really think closure is, is a real thing in a way. I think that we can get to a point where we're not super emotionally triggered by loss on a daily basis, but yet you're still going to think about this person and loss and feel moved by it and feel sadness. And, you know, I, I still have all of that. And so I don't think this will ever be fully over. And as anyone knows who has lost someone, you know, you have, there's so many different milestones. I know you also interviewed the author of the Modern Loss Anthology, mm-hmm, yeah. and I love that side. And, you know, they talk about these things Rebecca, a lot. Yeah. You have the loss, and then the first year, and then your feelings about loss continue to evolve as you go on in life. And so, you know, now I have a child, and that is a whole new perspective on looking, you know, on what that means to lose a child. Or another thing that's interesting is that the older I get, the younger 22 Mm -hmm. is and feels that she only got to live until, and that feels incredibly... You know, there's a lot of depth just even in that idea. The older I get, the younger 22 feels, the m- more of more outrageous it feels that that was the entirety of Ashley's life. And yeah, my kids
0: are, my older kids are only almost, you know, 11 and a half. But the other day I was like, wow, at some point they'll get as old as like my friend Stacy was when she died. Like all of a sudden I'll have kids who are her yeah. age. It's crazy to think about. But mm-hmm. anyway, although she wasn't who I was referencing earlier. Mm.
1: Anyway, uh, do you have any advice to aspiring authors mm-hmm. out there? You must. Sure. I mean, one thing that I think is often said, but I do feel is is a real true statement. Somehow, you have to find the story that only you can write, and that felt very, very true for this book and me. How so? That now I'm kind of in a place where, like, I don't know if there even is another story that it is as mm-hmm. individual as this one for me. But to other writers, you really need that. And another thing that was very helpful is just starting to talk about not being shy about talking about either your work in progress or what you're thinking of doing, because it helps a lot to be able to hear and see how people are responding to the story you're telling. And it also helps to crystallize your own thought process when you have to tell someone what your book is about. I mean, this is still a thing that I probably only got down like a few weeks before my book came out. Even though I had been working on it for 10 years, I could not concisely say what it was about. So try to practice that. And then you have something to be able to, you know, quickly sum up what it is you're doing and pay attention to, you know, I wouldn't necessarily say like pay attention to literary trends, but pay attention to what the ideas are that are kind of getting a lot of discussion in the, in culture, you know, whether it's other books or whether it's politics, but I think it always helps to try to speak to what's happening in the moment. Totally. Awesome. Yeah. Oh, well, thank you so much. Thank thank you for having me. I really, I love what you're doing and I think it's, you know, authors are lucky to have someone like you in the world that is really excited about books. Aw, thanks. That's really nice. I love books. I
0: really <laughs> nice. like a huge <YouTube>. That's great. <laughs> thanks. Today's episode was sponsored by serial S E R I A L B O X dot com, Serialbox.com, dot com, delivering addictive book content in short listen or read installments. Thanks to Ryan and Steve at Texture Sound for the audio editing and mixing. Thanks for listening to Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Uh...